We're in the book of 2 Corinthians now. And let me give you some background concerning Corinth and the church there. Classical Corinth, the classical city of Corinth, was destroyed in 146 BC by the Romans and really remained uninhabited for a hundred years until 44 BC when Julius Caesar rebuilt it. So when Paul visited Corinth in 49 AD, it was just over 80 years old and it had a population of 80,000 people, which was huge for a city in that day and age and in that time period. And it is, and, and during its short history, Corinth had become the third most important city in the whole Roman Empire behind Alexandria and Rome itself. And Corinth was this growing metropolis. It was kind of the, the new hot spot there in the Middle East or in that part of the world. It was situated on the Isthmus River there of Greece. It was called the Master of the Harbors. And it became this favorite spot for retired Roman soldiers to go and bring their families to live and to reside and just kind of to retire. Corinth was also a place of ethnic diversity. It was sort of a melting pot as people from all over Asia wanted to settle there. It was a lot like Southern California, you know, when people are, are in the, on the East Coast and they see a football game or something, you know, on, in the wintertime on TV out here and they see the sunshine and people in t-shirts and shorts and they go, that's where I'm moving. That's what my dad did. My dad was in Pittsburgh. He came out here to visit one uh, winter and it was like 85 five degrees and he went to the beach and he called his parents and said uh, send my stuff I'm not coming back home and uh, he'd been there ever since. Corinth had kind of the uh, it would be sort of in our day and age it might have been called one of the fastest growing cities in Asia. It was also a sports and entertainment center. Caesar had reinstituted the Isthmus Games in Corinth, which were second only to the Olympic Games. And the city, get this, they had a theater there. They were really into the arts. And they had a theater there that sat 18,000 people and a concert hall that sat 3,000 people. But it was also a place where a lot of people came in and out, a lot of travel, a lot of tourism, and because of that, there was a lot of sexual immorality, and there was also a lot of religious diversity woven together into the culture there in Corinth. It was sort of maybe what we would call on some fronts kind of the Las Vegas of its day. So Corinth was this happening place during the time of Paul's writing, and the church there benefited in a material way from the opulent lifestyle that was a part of that city. The self-made man ethos, or the I did it my way pride and individualism, was prevalent there in Corinth, and that mindset had, had, creeped, had found its way into the church as well. And oftentimes people living in that kind of environment where things are going well and, the, and the, there's a tendency to look on others who are going through difficult times and those who are suffering and to think something must be wrong with them. I wonder what they did. And that was how some people in the Corinthian church viewed Paul because Paul went through a lot of suffering. 
And so they looked at him and they thought, what's wrong with Paul? What did he do? How come, you know, he has gone through so much suffering and they wondered if if Paul's an apostle, if he's really a man of God, why does he suffer so much? And so there were were also those in Corinth who resented Paul's previous letters that he had written to them. Now, we call this 2 Corinthians, but in reality, it's really the fourth letter that Paul wrote to them. He wrote 1 Corinthians and then two other letters that we don't have. They're not part of the canon of Scripture, but Paul had written these letters to them, and in 1 Corinthians, he actually calls them on the carpet for some of their sinful practices. And then there were also those in Corinth who were questioning Paul's integrity. And the reason was is because Paul had told them that he wanted to get back to them, that he wanted to come back for a visit, but he hadn't showed up yet. And so they were questioning his integrity because he hadn't followed through on that promise. And so Paul begins this letter by addressing some of those issues. Let's begin here in verse one. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth with all the saints who are in all Achaia, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul begins here with his apostleship. And he calls himself an apostle by the will of God. He says, I am what I am by the will of God. In other words, he didn't choose this life per se. God chose him. And we see that in Acts chapter 9. Paul, he was a ardent persecutor of the church, the followers of Jesus. He hated Jesus. He wanted to single-handedly destroy the church of Jesus, and he was on his way to the city of Damascus with official papers to go into homes and take Christians out of those homes, put them in prisons, even have some of them killed. That was his background. That was his zeal. He thought that, that he was doing the right thing and trying to protect Judaism and the God of Judaism, and it was on that journey to Damascus in Acts chapter 9 that Saul of Tarsus who becomes Paul the Apostle is met by a light that blinds him knocks him to the ground he hears a voice saying Saul Saul why are you persecuting me and he says who are you Lord he knew it was (laughs) he knew it was the Lord who are you Lord and 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 Jesus responds and says I'm Jesus of Nazareth the one that you're persecuting And then Paul follows that up with this question, what do you want me to do? And those two questions really became the hallmark of his life. Who are you? His passion, I want to know you, and what do you want me to do? And so he says here, this is who I am. I'm an apostle, but it's by the will of God. He chose me. And Paul also has great insight here for them, for the church as well. They are the church of God. Now I want you to note that. Paul was the one who started the church in Corinth, but notice he refers to them as the church of God. And I love this because what what Paul is saying is this isn't my church, it's his church. And you know what? That's true of every church, of every ministry. That's why I always tell pastors and leaders, this is how we need to hold the church in an open hand. 
so that God can do whatever he wants with it, that he can turn it, that he can move it. You know, so often we want to hold things that God gives us to like this. And in order for him to work, he's got to like, you know, pull our, our grimy fingers off of whatever we're holding because we're holding onto it with such a tight grip. Paul was like, hey, you're the church of God. You belong to him. And then he calls them saints. And I love this as well because saints are the ones who have been called out by God. Saints are those who are separated from the world. We've been called out. This world's not our home. We have a citizenship in heaven. He's called us out of the world and he's called us unto himself. You know, there was a little boy who was at church one day with his mother and they were in one of those churches that have the big stained glass windows, you know, in the, in the, in the sanctuary there. And he was, you know, sitting there and, and he said, Mom, you know, who are the people in the pictures? And his mom said, oh, those are the saints. Well, the next week he's at Sunday school and his Sunday school teacher asked, does anybody know what a saint is? And he says, I do, I do. Those are the people whom the light shines through. And I love that because that's really what we are. We're those who have been called out of this world. We've been called to the Lord. And we're the people that he wants to shine through in this dark world. And boy, does he need to shine through us right now, right? He needs to shine through us today. So after Paul's introduction, now he addresses this issue that they have been wondering about him of suffering. And we pick it up in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so also the consolation abounds also through Christ." Now, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation, and our hope for you is steadfast because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will be partakers of the consolation. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure above strength so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. You also helping together in prayer for us that thanks may be given by many persons on behalf for the gift granted to us through many. Have you ever heard somebody ask this question? Maybe you've asked it yourself. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Why does God allow bad things to happen to to good people. Well, first of all, I just want to say this. The Bible says there are no good people. Um, <laughs> we're all sinners. You know? We've all fallen short of the glory of God. But, but that's, you know, you know the idea. Or this question, why does God allow Christians to suffer? And that's a problem for a lot of Christians because a lot of Christians think like this. If I have the right faith, 
If I really love God and I'm trying to do the right things, then my life is going to be filled with blessings. And usually this is how they define blessings. I'm healthy. My life is void of any major problems. God takes care of my family. I'm provided for. I'm safe. And I'm void. My life is void of suffering and pain. A lot of Christians think that way. In fact, I remember Greg Laurie saying after his son was killed that he got tons of letters expressing this sentiment, Greg, how could something like this happen to you? Like, Greg, you're, you're a man of God. You're special. God's using you. How could this happen to you? These things are not supposed to happen, in other words, to someone who really loves God and is being used by God. Well, the life of the Apostle Paul flies in the face of that type of mentality. You see, no one loved God more than Paul. No one had more faith than Paul. Paul was a great teacher of faith and great teacher of of doctrine. And he modeled what it looked like to love God and to to live with faith in God. And yet Paul, he suffered perhaps more than any Christian who has ever lived. You name it, Paul dealt with it. He endured it. In fact, I want you to turn, keep your place here, but turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 real quick. And I want you to, I want to read just one thing that Paul writes here about his testimony and his experience in suffering. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And look at verse 24. Here's part of Paul's testimony. From the Jews, five times, I received 40 stripes Minus one. Now think about that. Five times he was beaten like Jesus. 39 lashes. Five different times. Three times I was beaten with rods, sticks, solid wooden sticks. Once I was stoned. And he's not talking about marijuana, okay? <laughs> Three times. And when he was stoned that time in Lystra, they literally thought he was dead. The Christians are all gathered around. I mean, they're crying because they think he's died and God brought him back to life. It's crazy. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. In journeys often. In perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, beside the other things that come upon me daily for my concern for all the churches." Now, the only thing in that whole list that I can relate to is the last sentence, the concern for the churches. I mean, it's crazy, the things that he went through. I read this, I think, I've never suffered a day in my life. I, the, the next time Pete's down, next time you hear me complaining, just slap me upside the face and tell me to read 2 Corinthians 11, all right? I mean, it's crazy. Now, turn back to chapter 1. And I want you to notice what Paul said there in verse 8. Paul said that it got so bad at one point that he despaired even of life. In other words, there were some days where he just felt like he wanted to die. That's how bad it was. But this is one of the reasons why I love the book of 2 Corinthians. Because in this book, 
Paul gets very, very real and very, very raw. Maybe more so than in any other book he's written. He bears his heart. He bears his soul. He shares with us the things that he struggles with, the things that, that he deals with, the things that are on the, just the cusp of his heart. And he lets us in to see the times when, when things you know, were going on inside of his heart that were really, really troubling. But in the midst of that, he also reveals how he comes out the other side as a better man, as a better Christ follower, and a better minister of Jesus. And there's four things that I want us to see tonight that that Paul says about how God uses our suffering in the verses that we just read. So if you're taking notes, the first thing I want you to note that Paul mentions about how God uses our suffering and the pressing that we go through is that it allows us to experience something of the comfort of God. Look at verse 3 again. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the comfort of, of and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our tribulation." He didn't say in some of it, in all our tribulation. It was the author and pastor John Piper who called suffering, this is when he was going through cancer, he called suffering a beautiful hermeneutic. You might be thinking, what's that? What's a hermeneutic? Well, hermeneutics is the proper explanation of Scripture. And the idea, what he meant by that was this. Suffering has a way of making the Scriptures come to life. Isn't that true? Suffering has a way of just making God's Word all the more real. And what Paul discovered is that God meets us in our suffering, and in that, he reveals himself to us in a greater way. We'll see this in chapter 12, when Paul talks about his thorn in the flesh, that he prayed that God would take it away. And Jesus comes to him and says, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in your weakness. In other words, we talked about this Sunday, his power is manifested to the greatest degree, the greatest extent in our weakness when we're weak. And so what did Paul say? Okay, great, then I'm going to rejoice in my weakness because when I'm weak, then he is strong. But here's the thing, we don't discover that unless we find ourselves in times of weakness. In fact, really, the whole Christian life is supposed to be a life of weakness and dependency upon the Lord. That's what we're called to. That's the way he wants us to to live. And so it's the sufferings that bring us into this place where we it allows us to experience something of the comfort of God that we couldn't experience, something of God that we wouldn't know if we didn't go through that time of suffering. God's scripture, his comfort, his grace, his power, and his presence become more real in the times of suffering. The second thing, that we see in this is that suffering makes us more usable for God. Again, notice verse three. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation that we may be able. Everybody say that. That we may be able. 
that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds. That word consolation is another way of saying our comfort, God's mercy. It also abounds through Christ. Now, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings, which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast because we know that as you are partakers of the suffering, so also you will be partakers of the consolation. Here's what Paul's saying. When we suffer, God meets us in that time with his comfort and strength, and then that becomes a part of our testimony. That becomes a part of our story. And that becomes a part of our experience with God. And and that then equips us to have an impact on the lives of others who are suffering similar things. It opens up a door. For further ministry. You see, when you've gone through something that someone else has gone through, it gives you understanding. You, you sense, you, you know their pain. How many of you ever had a root canal before? Okay. They take that big long needle, they stick it, you know, all the way down into your heart, through your mouth, and you know, it's agonizing, right? You know, and even though you're numb and everything, I've had a couple of them, unfortunately. I mean, it's so somebody says, "Oh, I have a root canal," right away, you're like, "Oh!" Or what about you, ladies who have had babies, and you, those of you who have gone through hard, difficult labor. You know, there's some gals that they pop babies out in like two hours and, and it's like, wow, you know. And, but then you have the ones that like it's 24 hours, it's 19 hours and it's just brutal. And any of you ladies who have gone through that, there's a sense of like sisterhood there, right? There's a sense of, of like, you know, you're bound. Like you, you're, you're like, you hear somebody's, you know, in that time of labor and you're like interceding like crazy because you've been there. You know, you're praying for God's mercy. None of the guys are doing that because we've never experienced that. But you ladies, you're, you're like just, your heart, you're, it aches, it breaks. There's a special bond. So suffering brings this understanding. But I want you to note this word comfort that Paul uses is more than just having sympathy or empathy. That's good. But this word comfort is derived from two Latin words. It's the word calm, which means with, and the word fortis, which means to make strong or fortified. And so comfort is the idea, don't miss this, of coming alongside someone and strengthening them and fortifying them. That's what we're doing. And we're able to do that because of the insight that we've gained in our suffering and how God strengthened and fortified us in our time of weakness. And so the person who has been through a similar thing as someone else, they know how to use the right truth in that moment. The right truth of of God in that moment. And you know, this is part of the problem in the church today. A lot of times, well-meaning Christians say a lot of stupid things. Well-meaning, but stupid things. 
Like, for instance, someone loses a loved one suddenly. It's unplanned. It wasn't like somebody's in the hospital, they're struggling, but it's a car wreck or it's a heart attack or it's something, you know, it's really, really sudden. I have heard well-meaning Christians say to that grieving spouse, that grieving mother, well, praise the Lord, at least they're in heaven. Or to say something like, hey, well, we know, hey, the Bible says all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. Now, here's the thing. Those are true statements, but they're for the wrong time. It's the wrong time. I remember once when my son was eight years old, and I liked taking him with me when he was younger on hospital calls. And so we go to one of the local hospitals by here, and there's a guy named Jerry in the, the, the church, and he's, he's in bad shape, and he's in the hospital. He's all hooked up to all these, you know, wires and things, you know, everywhere in his body, and he's laying there in his bed, and he's just, he's just looking really, really bad. And my son, and just bless his heart, little eight-year-old, he's got just this big heart, he loves people, and, and we walk in, and, and, and he just doesn't know what to say. And so he says to this guy, he's all hooked up, and he goes, man, you're a really handsome man. <laughs> Now, Aaron can get away with that at eight years old, you know? But when we who are adults and we've been walking with the Lord for a long time and we do things like, oh, it's, it's so sad and it doesn't help. But the person who has gone through similar situation knows how to discern the right response. And sometimes the right response is no response at all. It's just to be there. It's just to hold somebody's hand. It's just to put your arm around them. It's just to sit in the same room with them for hours. Now, I love what Paul says here in verse 5. Notice again. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. The word abounds. I want to give you a visual picture of this. It's the idea of a river that is overflowing. It's a river that's flowing really, really fast, that's overflowing the banks. Now, that's hard for us here in Southern California where we live because we don't see a lot of rivers like that. But if you've ever been to, you know, Oregon or Idaho or somewhere where you see the rivers, especially after a heavy rain and they're overflowing, that's the picture that Paul wants us to have. Hey, the consul or the, the suffering is abounding, but the, the grace and the love of Christ abounds even more is the idea. And so the significance in this is that the strengthening that we encounter is greater than the pressure that we face. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen this. When I get that call, that somebody's in the hospital, and it's not looking good, they're at death's door, or maybe they've just died. And I get that call and I'm driving to the hospital and I just I start just getting anxious because I'm like, Lord, I, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I don't know what, you know, in that situation. And I cannot tell you how many times as I'm walking in and I'm just praying and I meet these people and they start ministering to me. 
Like they're sharing everything that God's been speaking to them and ministering to them and in that moment. And it's, it's just, I've seen it over and over again in that situation of just direness like that, that suddenly the grace of Jesus is overflowing in their life. And it's his grace is greater than the pressure and the situation that they're going through. That doesn't mean that, that there, there isn't grief and there isn't sadness. You know, this is where we get so mixed up in, in the church is, is we mix up happiness and joy. Happiness is based on happenings. You know, you're happy, you get a raise. You know, you're happy, your team wins. You're, you know, happy, the girl says yes. You know, you're happy about, you know, happiness is based on happenings. But joy is based on a state of being in God's presence, In the presence of God, there is fullness of joy. And so there can be both joy and grief in the same time, the same place, in the same heart. And and it's just so amazing how that, that happens where the strengthening that we encounter is greater than the pressure that we face. And as the sufferings increase, so does the supply of God's grace. James declared he gives more grace. I love that. It was Thomas Manton who said, grace is nothing but an introduction of the virtues of God into the soul. And listen, there is always, there will always be enough grace regardless of your situation. There's never a situation that there isn't going to be an abundance, an overabundance of God's grace to meet you in that situation. Again, it was author John Blanchard who said this, for daily need there is daily grace, for sudden need there is sudden, sudden grace, and for overwhelming need there is overwhelming grace. And here's the thing. Because we have suffered in that same way, and in our suffering, we have experienced the suffering or the, the grace of God, the comfort of God. And maybe that comfort has come through someone else. Maybe it's come from just God's presence. But whatever it was, we then get to be dispensers of that fortifying and strengthening comfort to others that we encounter who are suffering as well. Now, at this point, Paul begins to get personal about his own suffering. Look at verse 8 again. He says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in us. Now, we don't know the exact nature of, of what befell Paul in Asia. There's a lot of speculation about this. Some believe it was the famous riots that took place there in Ephesus during that intense confrontation between Paul and Demetrius the silversmith. But when we read that, there wasn't really any physical harm that came upon Paul at that time. So we're really not sure. But whatever it was, Whatever this event or season of events was, it left Paul very, very discouraged. To the point where he says that we were burdened beyond measure and above strength. And I want to give you another visual on this. The idea in these words is this. Picture a cargo ship that is so weighted down by its cargo. So weighted down by the weight of the burden that it's carrying that it's almost about to sink. That's how Paul felt. 
That's where he's at. In that moment in his life, he's just so burdened beyond measure to the point where he says that, that, uh, that we despaired even of life. Paul said it was like we just wanted to die. And then he says we had the sentence of death in us. So whatever it was, he felt like he had just been given a death sentence. But then in the darkness, in the midst of that darkness, he shares this glimmer of hope. Again, verse 9. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. This is such an insightful thing that Paul says here. The sentence of death was in us, he says. It was given so that we should not trust in ourselves. Isn't that oftentimes our biggest problem? We trust in ourselves. Our first reaction is usually, I can fix this. I can get myself out of this mess. I can take care of this. And so God is constantly seeking, though, to move us away from that tendency because He wants us to live these lives of not self sufficiency, but lives of being dependent and sufficient. Upon him. And so here's point number three. Suffering reminds us of where our strength really lies. And what Paul says here, it's so great. He says, and he's the God. We, we saw that we should not trust in ourselves, but in him. Why? He's the God that raises the dead. In other words, he's the God that does the impossible. But sometimes it takes us getting to our lowest low before we realize, I can't do this. I have to trust in the God who raises the dead. And verse 10, it's epic. Look at it again. He says, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us and in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. I love this. He says, God has delivered us. That's past. He does deliver us. That's present. And he will still deliver us. That's future. In other words, God has got you covered. Amen? The Bible says that he'll never leave you nor forsake you so that we can confidently say, I will not fear. So God helps us so that we can help each other. And suffering reminds us of where our strength really lies. That it lies in God. And then number four, suffering reminds us of how much we need each other. Notice verse 11. He says, you also helping together in prayer for us that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. I want to read this verse to you uh, again in the New Living Translation. I love the way it puts it. And you are helping us by praying for us. Then many people will give thanks because God has graciously answered so many prayers for our safety. You know, when you have a difficulty or a trial, there can be a tendency to isolate ourselves. 
There can be a tendency to pull back. You know, that oftentimes is, is my tendency. I don't want people to see my pain. Despite the fact that I am the main Bible teacher here at Calvary Vista, I don't ever like being the center of attention. The only thing that allows me to be able to do this is because I'm not talking about me, I'm talking about God's word. And so my natural tendency when things are are difficult, it's like, you know, I I, I just want to isolate. I just want to pull back. But that is so wrong. It's the wrong thing to do. That's another manifestation. That tendency to want to isolate is another manifestation of of that tendency towards self-sufficiency. I can handle this on my own. I'll carry this myself. I want you to look back. Look back again at verse 8. Notice what Paul says. For we do do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of the trouble which came to us in Asia. You catch that? Paul's saying, hey, we want to share with you what's going on. We want you to know what's going on in our life. Because we realize, hey, this is a team thing. We're in this together. And I love the fact, we have a couple different prayer chains here at our church, and we have a prayer chain line. And you know, those emails really, they ought to be filling up. Because we should be, open about sharing. Hey, I need prayer for this. We should be open to to share with our friends. Hey, can you pray for me for this? But so often we, 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 you know, hey, how you doing, bro? I'm doing great. And inside we're like dying, you know. And we don't want to be the heavy. We don't want to be the downer, you know, the Debbie downer. We don't want to be that person. But the Bible says that we're to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We need to see the, vet, the validity, the power in praying. You know, sometimes as a pastor, when all I can do for somebody is pray for them, I, I sometimes feel bad because I have this tendency. You know, I want to fix things. I want to have the right word. I want to have the right answer. But in reality, praying for them is the best thing that I can do for them because God can fix the problem. God can meet them in that moment. And Paul fully understood the role that the prayers of others played in his ministry. I want you to listen to a couple passages. He asked the Ephesians in this way. He said, pray also for me, Ephesians 6, 19, that words may be given to me in opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. This is Paul the Apostle saying, guys, pray for me that I would have boldness. To the Philippians, he says, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Guys, please pray for me that God would deliver me from whatever situation it was. To the Colossians, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Pray that God would open a door. In 2 Thessalonians, he says, finally, brothers, pray for us. That the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. Paul understood the need for the prayer of others. And here to the the church in Corinth, he said, hey, I don't want you guys to be ignorant about what we were going through. Because we need the help of your prayers. Praying for someone is one of the best ways to minister to them the comfort of God. 
Because we're calling on God to meet that person in that moment of their weakness, to meet him in in his strength and with his resurrection power. And so we learn from this tonight that our suffering, we're reminded, it reminds us of the comfort of God. It reveals something to us of God's comfort that we wouldn't experience if we weren't going through that difficulty. Suffering makes us more usable to God because suffering brings understanding and relatability so that we now can relate to what's going on in somebody else's life. Number three, our suffering reminds us of where our strength lies, that it's not in us, but it's in God. And then finally, our suffering reminds us how much we need the body of Christ, that we need each other. Now, after addressing the issues of suffering, Paul is going to deal with, and this is where we're going to pick it up next week, he's going to deal with this issue of his integrity, as they were questioning his integrity, and why he was delayed, and we're going to finish chapter 1, and we're going to get into chapter 2 next week, as Paul just carries this train of thought through uh, those sections, but, but, but here's one of the things that that we're going to see, that I just want to point out tonight, and you can kind of look at this as we're going ahead or or as you're reading ahead, is in Paul's answers, he did it in what we looked at tonight, he'll do it again next week, in his answers, Paul always is deflecting the focus from himself and on to God. Tonight, it was as we were talking about suffering, that he was deflecting, that suffering is really about, it's about God's glory. It's about God's purpose in our lives. We talked about that on on Sunday. Next week we're going to see where Paul will essentially say, I'm doing everything that I possibly can to keep my promise to get to you, but here's the awesome thing that we can rejoice in. God is the ultimate promise keeper, and I love that. I love that he does that because he's reminding us of this important truth that it's not about us, it's about him. It's not about us, it's about God. Again, it's the idea that we looked at on Sunday that we exist, our lives, for God's glory. That's why we're here. Our lives are a platform upon which he can be glorified. And oftentimes, where he is glorified the most is in our suffering. It's where the the world takes notice and they look at us and they watch and they're like, wow, I can't believe how you went through that. And we say it wasn't me, it was the Lord. You know, it's always interesting in our world today that, you know, there's a football game, let's say, and some guy catches the winning pass or throws the winning touchdown and right afterwards the you know the reporters are right up there in his face and and you know hey you know that was amazing how'd you do that and a lot of times it's somebody that's a christian and they're like you know i just want to give all praise and glory to my god my lord and savior jesus christ i gotta tell you i don't think the world's that impressed by that i don't think i don't think the world is is like you know oh man i think i want to become a christian you know so i can catch touchdown passes too but you know what I think the world's impressed? It's when the guy catch, he drops the pass in the touchdown that loses the game. And then somebody's talking to him afterwards and like, how do you feel? Or maybe it's a week later. And he's able to talk about how, you know what? It's just a game. And that's not, my life isn't, doesn't focus and revolve around that. 
You know, my life, it's about Jesus. That draws their attention. You know, you get the raise. Oh, praise the Lord. The the people you work with are like, that stupid Christian, you know. You get fired. And you're walking with a sense of like, okay, God's got this. And God's got me. That's impressive. That, That gets their attention. And that's the point. That Paul's wanting us to see in all this is that all of this happens is because we exist. We're here to bring him glory. We're we're here for a greater purpose than our pleasure. We're here for his pleasure and his plan. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this just opening tonight of this book of 2 Corinthians. We thank you, Lord, for the truths that we see here being communicated through our brother Paul, a man who suffered greatly for his faith in you, for his following of you. And Lord, we understand That we are living in a day and age in a world that is becoming more and more hostile toward followers of Jesus, toward your word. And Lord, we know that in the coming days, coming years, it could get worse. We know, Lord, that in this life, We suffer. There's difficulties. Our lives get plagued by sin and sickness and the effects of sin, even death. We live in a world where people are just freaking out, filled with fear or filled with hate, filled with frustration. And here you are, you've placed us to be these people in the midst of all of this that are called to have this completely different perspective. People who you call the church of God. We belong to you. People that you call saints. That we, Lord, have been called out of this world and we've been called unto you. And we're the people that you want to let your light shine through. So God, I pray tonight. I pray as we just take a few moments here before we go our separate ways to allow your word to just sink into our hearts to penetrate not just our minds but the the very core of who we are God I pray that what we've looked at tonight what we talked about on Sunday that you would be making this by your Holy Spirit a part of the very core of who we are that we might live differently that we might look differently differently 
that we might approach life differently. And the result of that would be you would be glorified. So Lord, receive now just our hearts on your altar as we just take this time to wait upon you. In Jesus' name, amen.